Welcome to the PD tour of the Francis Marion Trail podcast, following the driving trails developed by the Francis Marion Trail Commission in South Carolina. You'll hear stories of the Swamp Fox, the Revolutionary War hero, General Francis Marion. The podcast is a creation of the Florence Convention and Visitors Bureau with adaptations of stories collected by the Francis Marion Trail Commission. Some are historical accounts and others may be folklore. We'll let you listen and decide. This episode can be enjoyed while driving to Callahan Park near Kingstree, South Carolina. Major John James. Early reports from the Wax Halls led Lord Cornwallis to believe Colonel Benaster Tarleton's news of a much subdued and beaten South Carolina. With the occupation of Charleston and the British victory at Wax Halls, General Henry Clinton issued a proclamation that all paroles would soon be null and void. The statement meant that all parole holders had to resume the character of British subjects and side with them in the military operations of Lord Cornwallis. South Carolinians were being asked to swear allegiance to King George, and it did not sit well. There were many questions to be answered regarding the nature of the proclamation, and the man chosen to ask them was Major John James. When the HMS Loyalists dropped anchor in Winya Bay, the effect of Clinton's proclamation was immediately felt. The central question was whether those forced to return to allegiance to the king would have to take up arms against their fellow countrymen. Dressed in everyday planter's clothing, Major John James rode from Williamsburg to Georgetown to ask Captain Plumer Ardessois for clarification. The submission must be unconditional, said Ardessois. Will the inhabitants be allowed to stay at home upon their plantations in peace and quiet, asked James. Although you have rebelled against his majesty, he offers you a free pardon, of which you are undeserving, for you ought to all be hanged. But as he offers you a free pardon, you must take up arms in support of his cause, answered Ardessois. James responded in the only way possible. The people I came to represent will not submit on such terms. Enraged, Ardessois shouted, You damned rebel, if you speak in such language, I will immediately order you to be hanged up to the yardarm. There stood Major James, dressed in planter's clothing, face to face with Captain Ardessois, dressed in his elegant naval officer's uniform, complete with sword. In response to the British captain's threat, James sprang up, seized the chair on which he had been seated, and brandished it in his face. Still holding the chair, he backed out of the door, turned and jumped astride his horse. Upon his return to Williamsburg, he relayed the captain's words. Their response was expected. They would not take up arms against their friends and neighbors. Fresh from his encounter with the British officer, Major James was more than willing to accept the command of his fellow Williamsburg patriots in their fight. When Francis Marion arrived in Williamsburg, Major James and his militia were eager to serve under his command. The spirit of the men was quickly put to the test. British Major James Weems and his 63rd Regiment were approaching Kingstree and were to be joined by a group of Tories under the command of Major Harrison. Marion's men outnumbered only around 150. Fearing the worst, he dispatched Major James to lie in wait to count Weems' troops as they passed by. James set about the task, taking with him 48 men. As he and his troops hid among the thickets and counted the men in Major Weems' party, the odds must have seemed impossible to deny. The British had nearly twice as many soldiers as were under Marion's command. Deciding that he could only less easily lessen the number, Major James and his small band burst from their hiding place and killed or took prisoner 30 British soldiers from the rear of the line. With the news of the great number of British soldiers marching on King Street, Marion made the decision to withdraw from the area, 
rather than risk entering a battle where they were so badly outnumbered. The South Carolina militiamen were making a name for themselves, both on the American side and on the British, and were thwarting Cornwallis' plan for a quick end to resistance in the South. Marion had made his camp at Port's Ferry at about the same time that Major Mackay Jaganey was gathering a large roster of Loyalist militia along the Little P.D. Ganey was sure that he could put an end to the rebellion and its leaders. He set off with an advance guard of 45 horsemen with orders for the rest of his nearly 200 men to follow them to Port's Ferry and Francis Marion. The Swamp Fox was, as ever, one step ahead of the British. He had been alerted of the Loyalist movement by a scouting party and put into action a plan to move his men across the Sandhills to safety. Marion sent Major James ahead with a picked squadron to serve as advance guard. As the group approached a Tory settlement along the Little P.D., they were met by a troop of British soldiers. Without hesitation, James charged straight towards Major Ganey, who in turn fled. The chase was on. The two majors raced for a half mile before Ganey was able to take refuge in a thicket with several Tories. A brief moment of pause allowed Major James to recognize that he had outridden his men. Still, he spurred his horse into the group, shouting, Come on, boys! Come on! Here they are! Here they are! Only Major James knew that he was, in fact, quite alone on his side of the thicket, but the clever tactic worked. Ganey and his men fled, never paused even to look behind them, and stopped only when they believed they were safe in the bogs of the Little Petey Swamp. Within days of that event, Major James found himself a participant in the short-lived battle of Black Mingo. The 15-minute battle proved yet again the determination of the Patriots. Of course, Loyalist Colonel John Cumming Ball couldn't know the outcome of future events when he decided to pitch camp at Shepherd's Ferry. He believed that from his location, he could, quote, smite the Whigs around Indiantown or in Kingstree. While still at Witherspoon's Ferry, Marion had received the news of Colonel Ball's plans. Although he and his men had been riding all day, covering 30 miles of territory and crossing three rivers, he knew that the opportunity to approach Ball could not be wasted. Major James led a small group of horsemen along the Willtown Bridge. So old was the structure, however, that the planks soon began to rattle and rumble under the weight of the horses. The sound alerted a Tory sentinel who fired an alarm, rousing Ball and his men to arms. He rushed his men out into a field where they stood at the ready, listening to Marion deploy his troops. Under fire, Colonel Hugh Ory and Captain John James rallied their men, slowly began to advance upon the enemy. Colonel Ball's men retreated into the swamp of Black Mingo, but did but not before losing three men and leaving behind 13 wounded. Marion lost two men and had six wounded. Despite the losses, Marion's troops gained the guns, ammunition, and supplies the Tories had left behind. Numbered among the spoils were many strong horses, including Colonel Ball's own charger. General Francis Marion himself would claim that prize along with its bridle and saddle. He renamed the Steed Ball and continued to ride him throughout the Southern Campaign. Following the Battle of Utah Springs, a troubling situation began to develop among Marion's brigade. Marion was recalled to Jacksonboro to take his seat in the South Carolina Assembly. Tensions were mounting between Lieutenant Colonel Peter Ory and Lieutenant Colonel Hezekiah Mayhem, and the confiscation of horses for the militia was angering the people of South Carolina. Both Ory and Mayhem had been trying to build up their regiments through the recruitment of men and the procurement of horses. The horses were being seized from the farms of loyalists serving with the enemy and from community farmers who were asked to contribute the animals for at least a year at a time. Both men were taking wide steps in their use of granted powers, angering both Governor Rutledge and Francis Marion. Before leaving for the assembly, Marion had left command of his brigade with Lieutenant Ory, 
For his part, however, Lieutenant Mayhem was refusing to obey Ori's orders, resting on the claim that he had received his commission a full three months earlier than Ori and would not entertain the idea of being commanded by him. Morale was weak, recruitment was not going well, and discipline was becoming harder to maintain. While those in command of Marion's dwindling troops continued to argue, the enemy sent a detachment of 200 horsemen, 500 infantry, and two field pieces to find them. Leading the attack was Colonel Benjamin Thompson, who was spotted by an alert scout named Captain Thomas Bennett. Bennett raced to warn Major Lemuel Bennison, who was in control of Lieutenant Ory's dragoons. Bennison, who listened to the report as he leisurely finished his breakfast, refused to take the news seriously. Captain Bennett then sped off to tell Colonel McDonald, who surprisingly also refused to heed the warning, stating that he had only recently ridden through Christchurch Parish and saw no signs of the enemy. Unlike Bennison, however, McDonald did agree to at least send Major John James to investigate. He even went so far as to direct James to take temporary command of the regiment while he finished his meal. Major James moved the brigade to the right of the camp behind the causeway leading to Wombaugh Bridge. While riding to consult with Colonel Benjamin Screven, James was met with the sound of heavy firing from the direction of Benison's camp. British Colonel Thompson had come upon Benison, who had time to form near the end of the causeway, but not the strength to battle against Major John Doyle's loyalist militia. Major Benison and several of his men were cut out of their saddles. As for Screven, he had the misfortune of commanding a group of soldiers made up of mostly reformed Tories who were only serving their six-month term in the militia in response to Governor Rutledge's proclamation of clemency. Upon hearing gunfire, they turned and raced across Wamba Bridge, throwing off the planks as they did. The Benison Dragoons, had, who had survived Doyle's attack, came charging toward the bridge in their own retreat. Major James was under direct attack from two British Dragoons and only just managed to hold them back with his pistol. With unbelievable skill, he was able to charge through the enemy, forcing his horse to leap the 20-foot gap left in the now plankless bridge. Throughout the ordeal, Major James was the only Patriot leader who had been able to pull his men back into line, surviving the terrible British ambush. In retrospect, the Williamsburgers, who chose Major John James to represent them and their brave spirit of independence, could not have chosen more wisely. He remained a courageous defender of liberty and an officer unmatched in cunning throughout the war. The Burning of Muzans. Henry Muzan had been chosen as a captain in the militia when the call went out to take up arms in cause of freedom. That call had been made by Major John James when British Captain John Plumier Ardessois sailed into Winyaw Bay and dropped anchor off Georgetown. Upon landing, Ardessois published a proclamation that ordered all inhabitants to swear allegiance to King George. Major James asked the looming question, did the proclamation mean that those returning to allegiance would have to take up arms against their fellow countrymen? Ardessois answered, the submission must be unconditional. With these words, patriots from across the state began forming the militia. Captain Muzan had been educated in France, and as a boy, he had shared a friendship with Benaster Tarleton. Such childhood ties failed to hold the two together as the war raged on. Before Muzan served his country as an officer, he served his community as a surveyor and engineer. He would raise his family on a plantation at the edge of St. Mark's Parish on the Black River. True to his brutal reputation, Tarleton set the Muzan Plantation House ablaze on August 7, 1780. Muzan's 11-year-old daughter was, for some reason, on the top of the smokehouse when she spied the British advancing toward her home. She sounded the alarm, which allowed her family to take time to escape into the surrounding swamp. 
Tarleton ushered in a period of destruction by flame that burned out patriots and loyalists alike. The Battle of Kingstree The Battle of Kingstree occurred on the 27th of August, 1780. To say the least, the mood of many South Carolinians was gloomy. Charleston had fallen to the British on May 12th, and most felt that the patriot cause was lost. In fact, after the fall of Charleston, the British, with the help of Tories, managed to garrison all of South Carolina except for one place, Kingstree. In the swamps of the Williamsburg district, one man began to gather his forces, determined not to go down without a fight. That man was John James. He asked for a commander for his troops, and General Horatio Gates was only too happy to send him Francis Marion, more to get rid of the little man and his ragtag followers who Gates assumed from his appearance would be too unfit for a serious command. Marion took command of the Williamsburg militia and soon became a thorn in the side of the British. The historian Linda Brown authored the following narrative recounting the skirmish that would become known as the Battle of Kingstree. She wrote, According to Edward McCready's History of South Carolina in the Revolution, Marion heard that Weems was approaching Kingstree at the head of the 63rd Regiment, and that he also had a group of Tories under the command of Major Harrison with him. Marion had only 150 men under his command at the time, and so dispatched John James to lie in wait to count Weems' troops as they passed by. McCready writes, The night after Major James received his orders, somewhere near the present site of the town of Kingstree in Williamsburg County, he hid himself in a thicket close to the line of Major Weems, and his party. No one knows exactly where that place was, or apparently exactly what happened that night, only that it was north of Kingstree. McCready, in his history, says that after James counted the British and Tory troops, he could not resist bursting out of hiding for some rear guard action, and that the 49 members of his scouting party killed or took prisoner about 30 of the British and Tories. After the encounter, James and his men rode the rest of the night to meet with Marion and Peter Ory just before daybreak. James reported that the British forces were double those of Marion, and Marion felt it best to withdraw to North Carolina for a short time, much to the dismay of his troops. Hiding in the Great White Marsh The evening of September 8th found Francis Marion deep in conversation with his officers as they sat in council. Before them lay a most difficult decision. Either remain at Port's Ferry and face Major Weems and nearly 1,000 British regulars and loyalist militia, or disperse Marion's small group of close to 100 militiamen to live and fight another day. Debate raged on with vehement arguments on both sides of the issue until finally Marion recognizing that it was no time for a defeat, and that such an event, coupled with British trepidations, would so dishearten the militia that they would never return out again. Major Weems was intent on eliminating Francis Marion. To this end, he was leading 200 men down the Santee to be joined by to be joined by Montsrieff with a garrison of 200 regulars. Adding to their number was a large group of British regulars and Tories, including those from Colonel Patrick Ferguson's rifle regiment. Weems and his troops had crossed Lynch's Creek to approach Marion's front. Montsrieff's men had crossed the Black River, and Ganey had a large group of soldiers who were ready to attack the rear. Marion, upon making the decision to abandon operations at Port's Ferry, ordered his men to destroy the redoubt and begin the trek toward North Carolina. Before leaving, however, he arranged for Captain John James and ten handpicked soldiers to stay behind to gather information and to aid those unfortunate enough to encounter the advancing enemy. 
Dragging their two field pieces with them, Marion's troops traveled across the sandhills and swamps until, at last, they crossed the Little P.D. There they stopped long enough to spike the artillery pieces and leave them abandoned in the swamp. After covering another 40 miles, the men encamped in a Whig settlement near Amos Mill on Drowning Creek. Marion and his council of officers met again to discuss the unfolding events. Conceding that their retreat from Ports Ferry had saved his men's lives, Marion was uneasy about his countrymen they had left behind who would be at the mercy of the brutal Major Weems. He said at daybreak, he asked Major James and a few volunteers to go back to find out about how the Redcoats had treated their wives and children. With Major James on his way, Marion and his men continued to a new encampment on the eastern edge of the Great White Marsh. Although provisions were light, they were able to recover from their narrow escape and did indeed live to fight and win many more battles in the cause of independence. At this time, you should be at or near your destination, Callahan Park. 